You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Welcome to the Lead to Soar podcast. Here at Lead to Soar and inside a career that soars, we work hard to bring you the best career advice and virtual mentorship so you can have a career that soars. My name is Mel Butcher, and I'm the producer of the show. In this episode, I'm also acting as the host, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. If you're interested in learning more about the podcast or joining us inside a career that soars, visit leadtosoar.com. There's also currently a voicemail set up on the site where you can leave your career question for the Lead to Soar team to answer on a future episode. So one more time, that's leadtosoar.com. All right, on to today's show. I'm so pleased to bring you this interview with Heather Polinski. Heather Polinski was recently named Chief Operating Officer of Arcadis North America. For those of you who aren't in the environmental consulting field, Arcadis is a top-tier consulting firm providing environmental, remediation, water, and industrial design services to a variety of industries as well as the municipal setting. The company has approximately 6,000 employees in the U.S. and close to 30,000 globally. So it's a great occasion to see someone like Heather rise up through the ranks. Without further ado, I bring you this interview with Heather Polinski. Heather Polinski is an environmental and consulting professional with over 20 years of experience. She has a foundation of serving public and military clients, and she recently was named the Chief Operating Officer, COO of Arcadis North America. Heather, welcome to Lead to Soar. Thanks, Mel. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, talk with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So... I'm going to go kind of back in time and ask you some questions about your early career. And then I want to come into the present and sort of reflections on some things that have helped you along the way. You earned a BS in environmental studies and an MS in technology management. And you ended up going to work, it looks like, as a civilian for the Army. Is that right? Yes. I actually started with the Army right after I finished my undergrad and then did night classes. So I actually got my master's while I was working for the Army. Very nice. And what were the responsibilities like in your work? It was really interesting. It was a really great opportunity for me. I had done an internship uh, at an Army base in Massachusetts, and that's what connected me to the position with uh, with the Army in Maryland that I took right out of college. And I will say that it was a little bit of a shock to the system. I started out uh, very early on in doing reviews and of documents, massive environmental documents, and uh, helping people with uh, technology challenges that they may have had that were 
uh, maybe at the organization a lot longer than I had. But very shortly after that, my boss actually got promoted and couldn't handle his uh, project management duties anymore. And so I was given some pretty significant projects to manage. And um, it was a really great opportunity. I managed contractors. I managed different kinds of contracts. I worked with regulatory agencies. And four years out of college, I was actually asked to also go and brief congressmen uh, and work with um, government entities that were handling the transfer of land from the U.S. government to the government of Panama along the Panama Canal Treaty. So it was really a, I will say, a huge opportunity to jump in and be able to do everything from field work to large management and large communication and leadership type activities. That sounds really interesting. And I'd, I'd love to also just add here that I went to work for FEMA after I earned my first degree, and I ended up with some analogous experiences where I was kind of thrust into handling more than I would have imagined. Talk to us about what you were thinking then about your career. Where did you imagine it going? You know, I I um I really didn't have a good sense of where it where where it was going to go when I first started applying to jobs in college, I thought for sure that I wanted to be an uh, environmental consultant. And then I thought I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And then I realized that a lot of the work that that we do in the environmental business is managing and balancing the environmental regulations and environmental goals, I'll say, of our clients um, with their also mission goals, whether that be products or profitability, or in the case of the military, the military mission. And um, I quickly realized that I could do that from a project management perspective, and that's what really got me excited. And so I always saw myself being a project manager or program manager. I didn't actually think too far from that. I loved doing what I was doing, and I think all along the way, I've loved doing what I've been doing, whether that was with the Army or it was... um, in consulting, or as you mentioned now, my position now. So, you know, for me, I kind of looked for the the next opportunity, but I never really envisioned and said, this is exactly where I'd like to be. Um, When I graduated from college, I uh, had a dream of working for, um, for a company that could provide environmental services on a global basis and engage in international work. And I really enjoyed the work that I did in Panama because it allowed me to touch on that. And then I think I, I stepped away from that for a little while and focused mostly work in North America. And then now having the opportunity to expand more on a global basis is pretty exciting for me. Absolutely. Talk to us about what happened next. How did the transition end up happening from working for the government to working for a consulting firm? I finished my master's and that was a really big accomplishment for me. I wanted to make sure that I did that without taking a break because I felt like once I stopped, I might not go back. And then at the same time, the agency that I was working for was becoming, uh, was changing its mission a little bit. And it was becoming much more focused on policy and program management. And I just felt like I was a little too young and early in my career to go to or straight to a policy perspective. I thought I had a lot more to learn. And I was really fortunate because I had worked with somebody at the army agency that I worked for and he had left and gone to consulting and was really, really enjoying himself. And I had stayed in contact with him. And I mentioned to him that I thought it was time to to look around and see if 
consulting was something that I wanted to do. And kind of in my mind, I thought, well, I should figure out if consulting something I want to do before I have kids when I don't really have anything else that I, you know, I don't have a significant other. I don't have kids. Let, let me figure this out. And he uh, encouraged me to interview with, at the time, Malcolm Perney. Uh, and I said, well, I'm not just going to follow you. I'm going to go and do several other interviews. So I, I did. I went and had three or four other interviews, received a couple of job offers, and I just really felt comfortable with the position um, at Malcolm Perney, mostly because I knew someone there and I knew that he was really excited for me to come and join the organization. So I joined Malcolm Perney just as a, let, let me see, I can always come back to the government, but let me see what it's like to be in consulting. Okay, that's very interesting for me. I didn't realize that you came over as part of Malcolm Perney, so that's really cool. A couple of things for our listeners who might not be familiar with the the field and these companies. So Malcolm Perney was a mostly water-focused consulting firm that ended up being acquired by Arcadis. And about what year was that? It was in 2009. 2009. Okay. 11 years ago. And then I'd like to ask if you would just... Tell our listeners, what does program management mean? Because we hear a lot about project management, but I think program management is not as widely known. So I think there's various aspects of program management. In some cases, it's doing something a number of times, similar, similarly across a larger portfolio. So um, I, I kind of look at program management in two ways. There's, um, there's portfolio managing, so managing large projects with a lot of I'll say repetitive activities uh, that are similar, but a little different at a lot of different uh, locations or for a lot of different entities. And then the program management is really, at least the program management that I was doing early on for the Army and I've actually continued to do in my consulting career is is bigger picture management of programs. So it's anticipating and estimating what liabilities are and developing the guidelines by which we'll actually uh, institute a I'll say a cohesive program with consistent objectives and protocols, and then with a, with a common objective. And so I would say, so there's a lot of similarities between a portfolio kind of manager and a program manager, but also in program management, we're looking at cost control and schedule control, budget control as well. And we're going to talk about that more. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, so... When you reflect on the growth you've gone through, maturing in your career, if you will, what areas of growth or realizations do you see as most important to being an effective leader? And I'm I'm envisioning here things around personal growth. Yes. Yeah, so I think, well, first of all, recognizing, and especially I think, well, for me specifically, you know, wanting to be involved in in everything, you know, as you grow as a leader, you have to recognize that you have to build a team and give that team a clear direction and then let them grow, let them have the opportunity to develop and implement. And sometimes as a leader, that's really hard. And I think people get, and I, I think as for myself, as I started to grow in my career and get new opportunities, it was hard to leave behind some of the projects and other activities that might have been holding me back. And I was really fortunate to have uh, mentors along the way that said, okay, we're going to sit down and look at all the things on your plate and what you have to do and what others can do. And I think the first time that happened, I was embarrassed because I thought for sure I had to do all these things. 
But when we really sat down and talked about it, there was a whole team of people that I had that could do more. So I think the art of delegation and recognizing where you need to be engaged and where others should have the liberty and you should develop others to to deliver um, really from a leadership perspective, I think was very critical for me to be able to make that transition. And it's something I focus on when I see others that are having trouble kind of letting go is, is, and feeling overwhelmed. So I think there's a couple of downsides to not doing that in that you don't have the opportunity to take on the, the things that are around the corner or the challenges from a leadership perspective that are waiting for you because you're still in the doing mode and really helping people walk through that. Cause I, I had that where someone helped me walk through really understanding what I needed to do. I really needed to do and was critical for me versus what others could take on, which would free me up to take on more leadership activities. I think that was probably one of the, the most critical things that I went through in my leadership development. When you look back, do you see other instances of really important mentorship and what did that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I would say my mentorship, well, first of all, I've had fantastic mentors throughout my career. And I think in all cases, they were people who got to know me and then gave me an opportunity because they trusted me to get things done. And I can think of mentors as early as within my first internship, for example, where the individual that managed me became a mentor when I went back to college and then helped mentor me through the the application process when I was applying for jobs uh, and helped me sort through the different positions that I was being offered. And then I will say when I started, I mentioned the kind of peer mentorship that I received for the individual who helped me kind of work my way out and be willing to take the the risk of of leaving the government position and going into consulting. And then in Malcolm Perney, I had a number of mentors that all trusted me to take on something that maybe was a stretch for me. And, you know, I was very nervous about taking on, but they all put trust in me to be able to take those things on. And, you know, I, I think I either learned a lot or excelled and that afforded me the opportunity to build other mentors and um, continue to have opportunities. And then I will say, um, I think the most important thing that I learned through that mentorship process is to make sure that I was bringing along others with me as well. So I was fortunate enough to have people who took that type of initiative with me and gave me opportunities to excel and to learn. And then me trying to really look to pay that forward as well. Yeah. So I had a, um, in Malcolm Perney, it was a, a privately held company. And one of the officers that I worked with was a great mentor to not just me, but others. And he was always looking for opportunities to get us in front of other senior leaders um, to talk about programs and projects that we were on. He could have easily presented on them or talked about them, but he looked for opportunities to always be finding those ways for us to talk. And as you mentioned, Malcolm Perney was a large water and wastewater company, uh, I'd say most significantly in the Northeast, but uh, spread out across the nation. And um, even though what I was working on was their environmental business and our federal business, which was the smallest of our key uh, client areas, he always found an opportunity to get me in front of the board or get me in front of one of the presidents and really helped mentor my career along by bringing me to meetings that maybe I was really not a core person. I wasn't the one adding the value in the meeting, but it allowed me and afforded me opportunity to hear about what was going on. And when I was 
in my late thirties, um, I actually was asked, uh, and I was just a new officer at Malcolm Perney, but I was asked to be a member of the board of directors at Malcolm Perney. And that was a huge opportunity for me to break out from under the doing and the, you know, client management, project management, which were critical to what we do. And I really love doing, but to see how a company is run and the decisions that are made and the risk matrix that is looked at and how decisions really are driving the business and how vision and strategy are driving the business. And it was a really great opportunity for me to really just expand my knowledge. It was a really uncomfortable situation. I was, uh, was the only woman on the board of directors And um, I used to think about what I would say for five minutes before I would actually, I would actually say it. Um, And at one point, one of the, the chairman of the board came to me and said, everything you contribute here is valuable. And I think you think about it a lot before you say it. Feel free to just say it, Heather. You don't need to think about it and plan it out in your head before you engage with us. We all see you as an equal here. And that just that reach out really helped me, I'd say, in my last, it was a three-year stint on the board, uh, actually running up to the acquisition by Arcadis. And it was a really great opportunity for me to um, really understand what inclusion felt like and, um, and a, really, uh, a really good experience from a learning perspective as well. I'm so happy to hear that. What an amazing leader to have the empathetic insight to not only recognize that, but to reach out to you. Uh, That's just wonderful to hear. Um, Okay, so this is a a long lead up to a question. In a career that soars, and certainly here on the Lead to Soar podcast, we talk a lot about the full definition of leadership developed by Susan Colantuno. And that is, Quote, leadership is using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others, end quote. And further, research has shown career advice for women is under-indexed in achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes, or what we call the missing 33%. I know that you watched Susan's TED Talk about this, and I wonder if you might be willing to reflect and share on where you picked up some of the missing 33%, so business, strategic, and financial acumen along your career journey, and in particular, what it's meant to your success. Yeah, it's so interesting because I had really never thought of that until I watched Susan's TED Talk and it hit me. And I said, this is my biggest fear that I go into every meeting with is that I may not have as strong of a financial acumen or a strategic acumen as those around me. But yet I'm always given, you know, really strong feedback on my ability to to execute and do and all the other things that Susan talks about that are also critical, but not that 33%. And so I will say that I I think I've been given the opportunity, I mentioned one uh, just a little earlier with the position on the board. And I think that's interesting because it was a low risk decision nine other people on the board. I was you know, one of three uh, managing directors, I'll say, that was added to ad hoc officers added to the board. It was a really low risk situation for the company and created so much opportunity for my career to grow and to go over the financial statements and look at our, our year-end results and understand our valuation and understand our, you know, our officer model 
and things that you just would not ever get the opportunity to do in a real world setting as a project manager or a program manager. And so I will say that I also had the opportunity as project and program manager to spend time on accounts that were large enough that I could see things that went really well and things that went really poorly. And I think financial management, there's the academic aspect of financial management, and then there's the art of financial management. And I think when you really learn the art of financial management is when you have things that are really going well, and when you have things that are really going poorly. And, you know, from a project and a programmer perspective, I had both. And I had great accountants that were part of our team that helped me understand how we best manage in both of those scenarios. And then Coupling that with the board experience, I was just exposed to a lot more in that area. I remember one day I I went to a board meeting and we were relooking our strategy and one of the members on the board pulled out a book. He said, we're going to restart our strategy. So I spent the day at the Barnes and Noble this Saturday looking at strategy books. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like I would do that, but I'm, you know, this junior person on the board. The fact that someone else said that that's what they did, it it just like opened me up to say like, I want to learn more and I can actually tell people that I want to learn more or that I've read something and I have questions about it. And I would just say that, that all of those experiences together, I think have helped me. But again, I think I go into each quarterly review, you know, thinking to myself, do I know enough about the financial aspects of the business to really ask these questions? And, you know, I spend a lot of time focused before I go into presentations and before I go into discussions, really analyzing the financial data because I want to make sure I'm prepared. So I probably over, I probably overemphasize on that to make up for the gap that I really honestly had never thought about until that there was something, it wasn't just me. Uh, until I watched Susan's TED Talk. It sounds like there's a a few pieces of advice there. You talked a little bit about relying on those accountants and other financial people that are that are on board. That's definitely something we advocate for. Use the people around you who have this knowledge and expertise. People usually want to help, so they also like talking about themselves and their work. So, you know, going in with a bunch of questions is usually welcome. And then you also shared about seeing leaders who candidly didn't come to the table acting like they knew everything. They shared that they had to go do some research. And with us making this discussion together, we're sharing that with with other women and that's going to help somebody. So I like that. When you think about business strategic and financial acumen is there anything else that stands out to you in terms of good advice, either that you received or maybe something you learned the hard way you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I I think there's two things, Mel. I mean, one of them is to not be afraid to ask questions and be inquisitive. And, And the way that you ask questions can really result in a conversation maybe you didn't even intend to learn something in in a certain area. But by asking the question, the the team that you're working with is able to share some of their knowledge and you may learn way more than you even knew that you should have been asking the question about. Um, And so I think, you know, asking questions and not being afraid to ask questions. And it's easy to say, well, I could assume what the answer is here. I just won't ask the question because, you know, I should probably know. 
But I found that not only myself, when I ask questions, I get a lot out of it. Listening to the questions other people asks, ask, make me want to say to myself, like, I wish I was asking that question. That was a really good question. And making a mental note of how they ask the question and, and how they, how we all learn something from it. And reminding myself when I see others ask questions, don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't assume that you know the answer. And if it's a straightforward answer, you go, okay, yeah, I get it. Thank you. If it's not a straightforward answer, you'll learn something. And most likely someone else that you're with uh, will also learn something from asking the question. So I think the first one is really make sure that you're willing to ask questions. And then the second part is really trust your team. Um, and I think you mentioned this, but we, we all have different skill sets and we're all at the table because of something that we offer that's unique. And you have to remember that, that your weakness is someone else's strength. And if you've built a good team or you're part of a good team, it's designed that way. So use it and learn from it and know that something is going to come up where it's going to be your strength. And that's why you're on the team and others will learn from you. you now to just tell us a bit more about your journey to the C-suite. Yeah, I I will say I think 100%, not to underestimate myself, but I think that my journey to the C-suite has been based on the opportunities that have been afforded by my mentors and then my willingness to take those opportunities. And I'll say just progressing from a project manager to an account manager That occurred because someone changed their position and a position came open and I asked. And I think it was a stretch for me to ask, but I also thought that I could do it. And when I asked, they looked at me and paused and I thought, oh boy. And I said, you know, I think I can do it. I mean, you're involved, but you're too far away. I I really think that I have these reasons why I can, I, I can take this role up. And I don't think, I don't think there's a better answer. And that afforded me the opportunity to get into account management, allowed me to really show uh, financial contributions, significant financial financial contributions to my organization, and then gain that those other experiences. And then I'll say most recently in Arcadis, I when we merged into the organization, I had a manager who said to me, it'd be good to get you out of sales. We'd like to get you out of sales and into operations at some point. But then that manager left or he moved on to something else. And another manager said to me, I think you'd be really good in operations. I think it's important for your career, but you're, we need you in the sales role. So we can't change you out. And that happened for about four years, but I kept it on the top of my annual performance or my quarterly check-in calls. I kept that conversation going even with new managers and new mentors, I kept saying, you know, when, when I joined, there was a whole conversation about how I should, you know, get some diversity and, and join operations. And so um, I actually approached our CEO and I said, I've been in the same role for eight years. I think I add a lot of value. I, I can keep doing it. But I also think that when you have someone in one role for eight years, their voice can come, become stagnant. And I'd like to take on an operations role. And 
I was afforded that operations role. I was asked if I would take on an operations role. It was a lateral move. It was a promotion. And I thought, you know what, this is what I was been told all my career that if I could take on an operations role, I could take on other roles within the organization and succeed in the organization in a different way. So I took on that role and I, I loved it. It was a great experience and I was unique, not because I was great at operations, but because I had the sales background. And so I looked at things through a different lens and I brought a different perspective to the operations team. And, and then I had a mentor who said, you know, I think you would be really good. We have a position opening at, for COO. We didn't have a COO currently. We hadn't had one for maybe three years and we're going to have a position open for COO. Would you like to interview for it? And it'd be easy to say no, or I just got this other position and I have more to accomplish in it. But I think, honestly, my opinion is that you need to take the opportunities when they come because you don't know if they'll come around again. There's a lot to time and space. And so it was a great opportunity. And um, I interviewed for the position. And I think I was nominated to the position based on some great mentors that I have within our current organization. And that's how I ended up in this in this role. Uh, so it was doing hard, good work, doing hard work, building relationships, but honestly, building trust with mentors who were willing to take a chance on me and allow me the opportunity to help the organization in a broader sense. There's a lot of great advice in there that I'm going to break down for our listeners in a little break. But the other thing I, I would want to say here is that I'm so happy for you. And there's a lot of women, probably women that that you'll never meet that see you and see what you've made it to. And it's, it makes us happy and inspired and and it keeps us going. That that leads to something I want to talk about next, which is the consulting space that we work in is still quite male dominated. And there's some companies that struggle with their equity and inclusion initiatives. And I would say Arcadis has done a good job and there's definitely been growth in recent years. And, you know, from that perspective, what would you like to see other enterprise organizations doing? And what advice would you have for leaders and other organizations as they're trying to, you know, help women achieve their highest career ambitions, particularly in, let's say, STEM fields? Yeah, well, I think that there's so many, there's so many aspects to that question, Mel. I mean, everything from what are companies doing in their mentoring of uh, STEM professionals before they actually become STEM professionals. So what are companies doing to support the development of young girls and women throughout their education? Uh, whether that's in elementary school or middle school or high school and college. How is that occurring and how do we all support making sure that we have women that grow up not being told that it's okay, you're a girl, it's just math doesn't come to you easily. How do we create opportunities where they can see other women in the field so they can see themselves in the in the field? So I think that's a that's a real question, especially in organizations that are you know, our, our business is it's challenging business from a standpoint of selling primarily labor hours. I know we're, we're changing the, the way that our business looks, but it, it's a challenge to get that kind of investment. But we have great people who do give back in that sense. And I think companies encouraging that is an important thing. So that's one. I, I would say the other is to really ask each of us, are we mentoring 
women? Are we, are we creating opportunities and looking for those women who have the, have the interest um, and, you know, embracing them and having conversations with them and, and saying, you know what, if you didn't bring your baggage to a conversation, would you start it off with a, I'm not good at, or, you know, I might not know what I'm talking about, but, and, you know, encouraging people from that perspective to, you know, say, you do have things to offer and no, you may not have already performed this role, but you, you can perform it. So uh, in this role. So I think encouraging from that perspective. So there's the, the whole encouragement aspect and our roles in encouraging each other and our, our company's roles in encouraging each other. I, I would say that, you know, I think one of the things that we have at Arcadis that is really great is the women's network. And what I love about it is that it's not just for women. There are tons of men that participate. In fact, our business, one of our business line presidents is actively involved in the women's network and engaged and I think was an early sponsor of it. And so I think that that's important as well is that you have the embracing to recognize that diversity, equity, and inclusion, it, it is gender, it is race, it is sexual orientation. It's also different ways of thinking and how you interact with people and how you uh, process information at the speed at which you're able to pivot. All those things are key elements to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we need to, as an organization, make sure that we are really looking for diverse candidates. And I will say that you know we've made some really great strides on the gender front, but as an organization, we have work to do in some of the other areas. And so we're, we're struggling with how do we do that and what do we do differently and how do we balance all of these things, but with a common understanding and a common vision that having a more diverse organization is better. Having an equitable organization is essential and having all of the people in our, our company really support inclusion, I think it is also important. And that comes from the very top. And so I, I think that there's always going to be room for improvement in this area. But one of the key things that we did was set some targets and goals. And we need to continue to do that, to continue to improve our diversity within the organization. We set goals that for every interview, that there would be at least one woman, woman in the interview pool. And if we can't find a qualified uh, person for the position, then maybe we should look outside the organization. It's our goal to really promote people from within, to create opportunities from within the organization. But setting those goals, it puts a goalpost out there for everyone to understand this is important and this is something we're going to drive to. And I think we've seen really strong performance in the gender space because of that. And like I said, we need to evolve and add on to what our vision is moving forward so that we can continue to grow uh, what diversity means in Arcadis. But but I would say that it's really making sure that we are supporting it with all of our being, that we truly believe in it, not just for the sake of our organization, but the sake of the industry. And then setting targets because we all know what gets measured gets progress. And I think that's a really important point because you can be on your day, you can be getting through your list, you can be filling immediate positions. And unless you're faced with how am I doing against these targets, it's easy to say, well, there just isn't anyone that fits the need for this position. But before you know it, there's five positions you've decided there just isn't anyone who fits the need. And then I will say the next thing that we've done is actually create a list of up and coming individuals 
that we think could be ready for bold moves within the organization. And looking at that from a diversity perspective, you know, how do we make sure that we are saying who out there would we take a bold chance on to do something completely different or take a big jump, maybe jump two stops from where they are today. And then using that through our succession planning to really support the development of those individuals to be able to rise to the occasion when a bold mood comes up. And so I, I say those kind of three things are what I see as really important to helping not just you know, my own company, but also the industry from a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective. And I will say when I got promoted and I changed my LinkedIn status, it was a little overwhelming uh, of all the women that I've worked with at different companies and different industries that reached out and specifically companies within our industry to just you know, express their excitement for me and what it meant. And I, I honestly was a little taken aback by that, but really proud, really proud of the people around me that were giving me that opportunity and welcoming me into the position. That's really wonderful to hear. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> On a previous episode of Lead to Soar, we featured an interview with former Xerox CEO Anne Mulcahy. And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically she said that women need to expand their idea in their minds of what's possible for them. And you're a mother, and it seems sometimes that women can get this messaging that they can't have both a healthy family life and a high-achieving, high-level career. What is your message to those women? I think it really comes down to, one, understanding what you want. And two, different families have different temperaments and different relationships have different temperaments and surrounding yourself with a family that will support kind of you and your goals, I think is really important. I'm very fortunate. I mean, when I started working, I didn't have a big career. I was, you know, working for the federal government and I actually started there as a contractor. So it was, I got a stipend. I wasn't actually getting a federal government salary. And um, I met my current husband, who was a teacher and, you know, a pretty, uh, a, a pretty um, good position, actually. And, um, you know, we, we sat down and talked when we were ready to have kids. And he said, it doesn't make sense for uh, me to keep working. And so I was really fortunate that he chose to put his life on hold from a career perspective and help raise our, take an active role, very active role to raising our boys. And that, that works for us. And, you know, I travel quite a bit, like most women in these types of positions, and hopefully that'll change a little in a COVID world or post COVID world and become a lot more sustainable, both from a personal perspective and an environmental perspective. But he supported every day, every day, every trip, every promotion, you know, why are you asking me? Of course you should, you should take that. Who knows what's next? Just you know, continue to to soar and support me and be my number one fan. And I'm just really, I'm lucky. Not everybody has that. And, you know, it's hard to know, but but I just feel like I'm really supported by a great uh, support network. And so it also allows me, and it's hard. So he's had to tell me a couple of times, like, you know, I'm the primary caregiver. You don't have to be here all the time. You have to choose what's going to be important. Um, and you can't be upset when you have to miss things. And you know, it, if I look back, I have missed things, but I know that we're a team and that my kids know that I love them because when I can, I'm there. 
and there's a, you know, there's a balance to that. I have to find the times when things aren't crazy and they don't need a lot of my attention and I can be more present at home. And that's just, you know, what I've chosen and I'm, and I'm happy with it. And one day I was, you know, and I always wonder if mom guilt and I wonder if that, uh, if everyone else sees it, if my kids grow older, if they'll see it the same way as I do. And one day, one of my sons and I dropped my other son and husband off at the airport and they were going on a trip for a week. And as we pulled away, I was starting to cry. And my son said to me, he was maybe 14 at the time. He said to me, mom, are you crying? And I said, well, I'm just a little sad or leaving us. And he said, mom, no one cries when you travel. You go all the time. No one cries. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, now I'm really going to start crying. And he said, because we know you're always coming home. And I thought, you know, somebody told me when my kids were really young, they said to me, you know, begin with what you want to end with. And I think it was related to like horseback riding. Do you want your kids to be horseback riders and think about the cost of that? You start out with one lesson and before you know it, that's what you're doing. So think about the, think about the end and the beginning. And I thought to myself, I've always traveled and we've always had this kind of uh, approach. And so my family's just been accepting of it. It's our way. And what my way looks like does not look like what other people's look like. And I think that's okay because we've built what works for us. And so I guess this is a long-winded answer to say, I think you have to understand what your picture looks like and be happy with your picture and don't spend your days, you know, comparing yourself to other people, other families, other pictures, because they might not be the same, but it's okay. And, you know, I don't make it to the neighborhood bunco very often, uh, I don't get invited very often. And, you know, that's just, that's the way it is with what I've chosen to, to focus on and what I want out of, out of life. And so there's things that, you know, I won't be doing, but it's also when I put them on my priority list, you know, they're not the highest thing on my priority list. That's a great example of being deliberate. And a great word for it. And I, I do want to highlight that Inside a career that soars and, and everything that we're doing there, we want to support women to achieve their highest career ambition by their definition. And that does not mean the C-suite for everybody. It just doesn't. Everybody has a different vision. So, yep. And I think that the key there, Mel, is to know what that vision is and be true to it. And I guess that's, you know, that's what I would say is, you know, know what you want surround yourself with people who support that and, you know, go after what you want. And, you know, I've had people say to me, well, I'm just not sure if I'm ready for the next position, like, but is it what you want? Well, yes. And, you know, in a year, maybe I'd be ready for that. And, you know, my, my message is go, go for it now. If you think in a year, you'll be ready. You're probably ready now. By the time a year passes, I mean, there's usually a pretty long runway of needing to adjust to a new position anyway. So I love that advice. Thank you. My last question for you, Heather, is simply, what's the best career advice you've ever received? Yeah, well, I've definitely received a lot. I, I would say probably the best career advice I've ever received is to have three clear messages, repeat them frequently, and get a cadence to your message as a leader. And I think that's really important is to think about what are the three things you want people to walk away from any experience and really make sure that you reinforce those three key messages along the way. And that, you know, is from a company perspective, it's from a team perspective, it's from a family perspective. 
you know, what are the three key messages? And you have to be pretty consistent with those as you deliver them to make sure that both really appear to be intentional, people can remember them, and they can get behind them. And, and I think the three key messages that are really important need to be focused around the why we're doing something, and what we want as the outcome. And if you can keep the those messages pretty consistent, then people can follow you. And so that's what I would say is probably the best career advice that I've had is to get the three messages and get a good cadence with uh, delivering those three messages, and it'll help you bring people along with you. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Okay. That's all I've got for today, Heather. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your career path and advice with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar. Thank you.